Welcome to Journey. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Ken, and we're starting a brand new series today. This is something that's been probably this summer, God has just really been dealing in my life, trying to help me understand this better personally, and, and so I always like to share the wealth. When God's convicting me of something, I feel like, well, let's just convict everybody and let everyone have the same pain, and uh, so uh, we're, we're going to we're going to be in this series for the month of November, and today I'm going to kind of introduce you to the concept, and then over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at some case studies from the Old Testament and look at how God had to work this out in their lives. But what if I, what if I told you that every sin that you struggle with, every discouragement that you deal with, every lack of purpose that you live with, that all of it comes down to ignoring one commandment? What if I told you that you cannot break the nine commandments without first breaking the first commandment? So we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in this passage the whole, the whole time that, that I'm speaking this morning, and so this is going to be a pivotal passage for you. If you're in a paper Bible, this is going to be easy to find because the first book of the Bible is Genesis, and then the very next book of the Bible is Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 20. If you're looking it up on, your, uh, on an app, show the person next to you that, that that's on your phone and not Instagram or something else. Um, just a little bit of accountability there. Exodus chapter 20, and while you're turning to Exodus chapter 20, it's really important to understand the context of what's going on here. The nation of Israel, which started as a family, started as a really big family. How many of you come from a big family? Any of you come from a big family? My dad's family was big. He had nine sisters and one brother. That's a big family, I'm telling you. Just one brother. Can you imagine how horrible that would be? And they were right in the middle. <laughs> Originally, it was actually ten sisters. One passed away. So five girls... Two boys and then five girls. I'm like, just kill me now. No offense. <laughs> so here's this really big family that over 400 years became a nation. The problem is for 400 years they had been in Egypt and for those 400 years they had been slaves. And we just don't even have any way in our, with American history, we just don't have any way to wrap our minds around 400 years of being slaves 400 years, and God taps a guy named Moses on the shoulder, and he says, I'm going to use you, a stuttering knucklehead, I'm going to use you to deliver my people from slavery, and God does exactly that. God supernaturally moves through Moses, and God sends plagues upon Egypt, and he's trying to get the attention of Pharaoh to change his heart to cause the people of Israel to be freed from their slavery. And it finally happens after plagues of darkness and blood and boils and frogs and gnats and all that. It finally happens, and, and they're free. And God leads them through the Red Sea, and he feeds them with manna and quail and water from a rock, and, and yet they still have this identity of being a slave. See, if you've been a slave for 400 years, you can't shake that identity very quickly. And so God invites Moses up into a mountain, and he says, Moses, i gotta give you some, I got to give you some guardrails. i got to give you some, some, some really important pieces of information for this nation so that their identity can begin to change. Because so far, their identity is wrapped around scarcity and slavery and insecurity. 
So God says, I, I have some instructions for my people. And so we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 20. And this is where it starts, beginning with verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. And he starts in verse 2 with a premise to the instructions. Verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Before he gets to the first instruction, he is making a pronouncement of who he is, and he's helping them to understand the context of their relationship. He starts out with these words, I, the Lord, am your God. Would you say that phrase with me? I, the Lord, am your God. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you'll see the word Lord is all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. If you're following along in our notes, I messed up the scripture in our notes, and it's not all caps. But in the Old Testament, anytime you come across the word Lord, and it's in all caps, what that means is the translator's way of letting you know that this is the proper name of God. This isn't, just a, this isn't just God or the Lord. This is literally in the Hebrew would be the letters Y-H-V-H. And for years we pronounced this Jehovah. Probably a better pronouncement, uh, pr- pronunci- whatever it would be, uh, Yahweh or Yahweh would be even more. And, and this, was, this is a proper name. He's saying, I, Yahweh, sorry for all the spit in the front row. I, Yahweh, am your God. Like, I, I, it, it's personal. This is who I am. And oh, by the way, here's what I did for you. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. That Their minds would be brought back to that final plague, that final dealing with the Egyptians that caused them to be free. Their minds would be drawn back to that night when, when Moses had given everybody the instructions. And even the Egyptians could have gotten in on this. He said the wrath of God, the just and right wrath of God is about to be displayed upon this whole land. And so if you want to be spared from the wrath of God, here's what you need to do. You need to take a one-year-old lamb that was without defect, that is spotless. You need to take this lamb, you need to kill it, and you need to take its blood, and you need to wipe its blood over the doorframe of your home. And then make sure your whole family is in that home that is literally covered and sealed with the blood of the lamb And as the angel of death comes and begins to display the wrath of God, you and your family and everyone in your home will be spared. And it was that night that was the culmination of the plagues. It was that night that was the final straw that broke the camel's back and and Pharaoh finally relented and the people of Israel were finally free. And God says, I, Yahweh, I am your God. It's personal. I'm not just out there. I'm not just distant. I'm not far away. I am your God. Here's the opportunity. I am your God. And I have freed you. And you're not who you used to be. You no longer live in darkness. You live in the light. You're no longer in slavery. You're in freedom. You're no longer in condemnation. You're in righteousness. You no longer belong to sin. You belong to grace. I am I am your God. This is who I am. This is the relationship that I want to have with you. And he goes on and he says, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you must not have any other God but me. This is who I am. This is the context of a relationship. This is what I've done for you. Now here's the first instruction. You must not have any other God but me. Can I just ask you a question? Is this commandment restrictive? Is it restrictive? 
The first commandment that God gives his people is not, is not meant to take away from their freedom. It is actually meant to enhance their freedom. So, so he, let me ask you this follow-up question. You know, the first question is, is it restrictive? The second question is, is there any other living God that can rival the one true ancient of days God of the universe? Is there any other living thing, any other living person, anything that could revival the strength, rival the strength and the power of the one true God? And the answer is a resounding no. In fact, everything that exists was created by the one true God. The earth is his. Everything that lives in it belongs to him. And so what you could say is that everything in this world put together is less than God. All the technology of this world put together is less than God. All the wisdom of this world put together is less than God. All the riches of this world put together is less than God. So when God says, this God who says, by the way, I am your God. This is a personal thing. I freed you. When he says, you must not have any other God but me. God isn't being restrictive. God is saying, hey, there's nothing that can rival my power and my wisdom and my strength. So why would you want to serve something else or someone else that is less than me? In the process, wouldn't it actually be a counterfeit? Wouldn't it be lesser? See, here's the thing. In our soul, in this central place of our lives, every single one of us have a throne. You have a throne in your life. It is a singular throne. I'm not talking about a bunch of thrones. I'm talking about one throne that sits in the core of your life. And the question that really we've got to nail down is who is sitting in the throne? Because somebody or something is sitting in the throne that is at the core of your life. And the pr- here, here, here's, if, if you want to remember one statement from this whole sermon, here's a statement. God alone must sit on the throne. God alone must sit on the throne. Would you say that with me? God alone must sit on the throne. Why? Why would you want to have anything else or anyone else sit on the throne? If he has all wisdom and he has all strength and he has all power and he is timeless and he is in this time and yet he is out of this time and he is eternal, why, why, why would you not want him sitting in the throne of your life? Why would you want something lesser sitting in the throne of your life? And I think most of us, like, like this isn't new information. For mo- most of you grew up in the church or you've been around church long enough that what I'm saying is not like you're going, I've never thought of that before. Pastor Ken, this is such great new information that you're giving us. Like we all know, if most of us in this room would say, hey, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? Right? Like, we, we would say, I love Jesus, I worship Jesus, I'm all about Jesus. But here's the thing, do you worship Jesus exclusively? In other words, the temptation is to say, yes, I love you, Jesus, and I worship Jesus, but to, Jesus, can you just scoot over a little bit? Because there's some other things and there's some other people that I want to have sit, and Jesus says, no, if I'm going to sit in the throne of your life, I want the entire throne. I don't want to scoot over. I don't want to make room. I want to sit. God alone must sit on the throne. 
It's him or it's nothing. And we say and we sing and we believe nice things about Jesus, but many of us in this room have not given him the singular throne of our lives. We haven't invited him to truly call the shots of our lives. So Jesus gets seated on the throne, but we scoot him over so that we also have room for relationships and hobbies and work and football and food and cell phones, and sex, and shopping, and video games, and church ministries. And he becomes one God among many gods. And so we don't organize our lives around Jesus sitting on the throne. We organize our lives and then say, Jesus, would you bless what I've organized? To experience the freedom that God has for us. And listen, God loves you so much. He's not the cosmic killjoy. He's trying to restrict your life. God loves you. He actually wants you to experience a fulfillment and a fruitfulness and a flourishing in your life that you can't experience any other way. Because he loves you so much. He says, listen, I'm the one who freed you. I love you. I've been with you. I've noticed your pain. I, I, I. I want to sit, and when I sit in the throne of your life and you give me that exclusive place, you will experience freedom like no other. He goes on, let's keep going, verse 4. This is technically, if you know the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, a lot of us cheer on the Ten Commandments. I'm a, I wasn't going to go down this rabbit trail, but Pastor Aaron, I'm going to go ahead and do it. We, listen, I'm all for displaying the Ten Commandments. I think the Ten Commandments should be in our schools. I think the Ten Commandments should be in public places. But listen, there's been a hypocrisy in the church. ABC News a while back was outside of a rail. I think this was in Alabama when they had that whole big fiasco of the Ten Commandments in some public building. I think it was a state house. And so there was this big rally. All these national leaders came in, and they did this big, big meeting. And it was all the central point of the meeting was the Ten Commandments need to be publicly displayed. By the way, did I just say I'm all for this, right? Don't walk out of here. Don't put something on social media. Pastor Ken doesn't think they should be out there. I'm all for it. But listen, here's what ABC News did as all these people were leaving the rally. They said, hey, nice rally, right? Oh, yeah, I love the rally, love the speakers. Hey, can you just do me a real a quick favor? Can you just name for me the Ten Commandments? Just list them, real, just real quickly, just list for me the Ten Commandments. Less than 20% of the people who attended the rally could list all ten of the commandments. There's been survey after survey done of evangelical, born-again Americans who can't even come close to naming all ten commandments. I'm not even going to ask you. That, that, this isn't a sermon about the Ten Commandments. But I'm just saying, like, Central to the Ten Commandments is you must not have any other God. Now, the second commandment, I would say, is really, it just flows from the first commandment. The second commandment is what we're reading in verse 4. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. And this is a commandment where we go, oh, thank you. That first one was rough, but this one... To chant, I got this one down, I have never worshipped an idol. I've never, I've never had a temptation to go into my garage and get out my saw and saw off a block of wood and start chipping at it and paint it up real good and put a shelf in my house and put it on the shelf and burn some candles around it and kneel down and start worshiping. I, I, Ken, I've never, never had that temptation. 
never done it, don't see it in my future, I'm good. This is the one commandment. This is the one commandment I'm good on. There's a problem with that. We have all worshipped idols. You say, well, what, what are you talking I love Timothy Keller's definition of an idol. He says, it is anything more important to you than God. An idol is anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Do you have any idols in your life? Do you have any idols in your life? Idols come in all sizes and shapes. And counterintuitively, idols aren't always sinful things. In fact, most idols are good and decent things. But when we turn good and decent things into supreme things, then we move into the territory of idolatry. God says we aren't to allow any likeness or form to take the place of worship in our life. What's he saying? God alone must sit on the throne. As we continue to read, God gets even more specific. How many of you are loving this sermon so far? <laughs> like, can't can we go back to talking about money? That was more comfortable than this. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, you must not bow down to them or worship them. And, and here, here's the thing. We, we hear worship and we instinctively think of something religious. We think of, we think of like the moment that we just had a few minutes ago and hands lifted up and that you're feeling the good vibes. Or maybe for you, for worship, worship includes stained glass windows and maybe includes robes or includes, like, like we, think of, we think of worship as, as, as very, a very religious thing. But you know what? You can be in this room and maybe you're here visiting, maybe you're here as someone's guest and, 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 and for, you don't even know what you believe about God. You say, Ken, I don't even know that maybe I'm agnostic. I don't know what I believe about God. I don't know what I believe about Jesus or the Bible. And I would tell you, even you are a worshiper. Because the throne in your life is not based on whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Everybody, atheist, agnostic, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, whatever label you put on yourself, everybody has a throne in your life. Everybody worships something or someone in fact, I heard it said the other day that the opposite of theism is not atheism. The opposite of theism is idolatry. Everybody has a throne. Everybody worships something. And he says, you must not bow down to them. You must not worship them. And then he says this statement, and this can be a tricky statement. I'm just going to say this ahead of time. Sometimes we don't like this. He says, for I, the Lord your God, again, it's that personal name for God. I, Yahweh, am your God. Again, he's repeating it. I want you to know, I am your God. I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Now, I, sometimes we hear this and we go, ah, when I think about the attributes of God, like I like to think of merciful, mighty, lovely, beautiful, jealous. <laughs> I don't, I don't. I don't want that to be on the list of attributes of God, right? Like jealous. Because when I think of jealous, I think of petty. Don't you? Like I think jealous. You think of the middle school girls. 
Why do, why do all I got to say is middle school girls, right? Think of the, the middle school, they're best friends, and then one day the one friend does something, and they get jealous, and so, no, you can't sit at my table anymore, right? When I think of jealous, it's what I think. I think of the high school basketball player who won't pass the ball to another player because he's jealous of how good he is. I think of that, that relationship where that insecure person that you're in relationship is always questioning you and there's no trust and and they're controlling you like that's petty but you know there is a right jealousy there is a proper jealousy if you if you were to go to a restaurant on friday night and i mean like this is a nice restaurant okay this is this is a restaurant where they actually put white tablecloths on the tables and they light the candles, and the lights are dim in the place, and they're not dimming the lights because the place is nasty and disgusting. Have <laughs> you ever been to a restaurant, and you're like, I wonder how gross this place would look if they turned all the lights on. No, this is, this is a nice restaurant, you know, and they have fresh cut flowers, and, and you were to go in the restaurant on Friday night, and sitting at a table, you see myself, and across the table, you see someone who is not Carrie. You say, Pastor Ken, who is that? I said, well, this is my date for tonight. He said, well, where's Miss Carrie? Oh, she's at home with the kids. Don't worry, I, I only do this a couple times a year. Every other Friday night belongs to my wife. But a couple times a year, I like to go out for a nice, nice night on the town with somebody else. Can I ask you, when I get home at the end of that night, and I walk in the house, and there's my wife sitting at the dining room table after people from the church have Instagrammed it. And <laughs> Carrie's not going to go, hey, did you have a great night? What is Carrie going to feel? What is Carrie going to feel? She's seething already, and I've done nothing, by the way. <laughs> my patient, beautiful, loving, faithful wife, is it right for her to feel jealous or is it wrong for her to feel jealous? Is it right for her to feel jealous? How many of you say it's right for her to feel jealous? She's looking, by the way, to see if your hands are up or not. Is it right for her? Yes. It is right. Our Heavenly Father, think about who he is and what he's done. He says, I am the one who freed you from a house of bondage. I created you. I put my breath in you. You're not an accident. You're precious to me. I loved you so much that instead of you having to go and slaughter a lamb every time you sin and take that blood and smear it over the altar, no, I sent a sacrifice that once and for all was slaughtered, the spotless, sinless lamb of God. I allowed my very own son to be the sacrifice once and for all. So when we turn our backs on him and allow other things to sit in the throne of our lives, is it right for him to be jealous? This isn't a petty jealousy. This is a rightful, holy jealousy. He goes on. This passage just keeps going. You're like, I never knew the Ten Commandments could be this insightful. He goes on because there's consequences when we allow something else to sit in the throne of our life. Listen, there are consequences. Verse 5, 
The end of verse 5, I read the beginning of verse 5. The end of verse 5, he says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Here, this is why this is so serious what we're talking about this morning. Your idolatry doesn't just affect you. Your idolatry affects your family. Students in this room, when you, de- when you decide, you know what, I don't, Jesus, yeah, okay, I'm, but I'm going to allow some other things to sit on this throne. It doesn't just affect you, it affects your parents. It affects your siblings. It affects your future spouse, your future family. Parents in this room, when you allow other things to sit in the throne of your life, it will have an effect on your kids. When you decide, you know what, I think the culture and the world around me knows way more about relationships and parenting and sexuality and finances and all these other things. The Bible is so archaic and outdated. I'm going to go ahead and go with the wisdom of this world instead of the wisdom of God. There are consequences. There are ripples. Here's the good news. Verse 6. But I lavish unfailing love. Listen to this, for a thousand generations on those who what? Love me and what? Obey my commands. Okay, there's ripples, there's consequences for idolatry, but listen, there's also incredible ripples for obedience. When God alone sits on my throne, can I just tell you, there's blessing, there's protection, there's covering, there's provision. God says, listen, your life will flourish when God alone sits on the throne of your life. There's blessing for many generations. What does he say this? I lavish my unfailing love for a thousand generations. So what do we do with this passage? Some of you are like, I wish I could just rip it out. What do we do with these first two commands? I think with great humility, we have, to, we have to get along with God and just say, God, would you reveal in my life anything that is sitting in this throne that is an imposter? Anything that I'm crowding you out with, God, would you reveal those things to me? And then I think you need to do the, the work of ruthlessly eliminating those things. A.W. Tozer said, an idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. In other words, the hidden idols in our hearts and minds are often more dangerous than a wooden idol that is set on a shelf. What do you seek to temporarily console you and comfort you? Are there some idols that you need to tear down to clear out? Are there things cluttering your house or your mind? that are keeping you from truly following and obeying Jesus? Have you latched on to teachings and guidance of the world instead of following the very words of God? Timothy Keller says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life as meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. An idol could be family or children or a career, or making money, 
or achievement. An idol could be your brains that everybody knows how smart I really am. An idol could be beauty, how I look. It could be a romantic relationship. It could be a political cause or a political candidate. Now, listen, some of those are good things, but they have no business sitting in the throne of your life. They can be on the outskirts, but they can't be on the throne. God alone must sit on the throne. Would you help me out and close your eyes for just a moment? I want to ask you a couple questions. What do you daydream about? What do you daydream about? What worries you? What fills you with anxiety? What worries you? What scares you? Fills your heart with fear. What scares you? What makes you angry? I mean, just ticks you off. What racks you with guilt that you can't move past? The shame that you just can't get past. See, these, these, you can open your eyes because I don't want you to fall asleep. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, I was almost there, brother. We put those questions in your notes because the answers to these questions can help point to what those idols might be. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel distanced from God. You have a difficult time feeling close to him. You have a difficult time reading scripture. Maybe something is standing in the way. Maybe it's because something is sitting in the throne of your life that has no business being there. Ask God. You say, Ken, I've never heard God speak to me. I'm telling you, if you will take five minutes every day this week just to be quiet, first just say, Holy Spirit, I welcome you. Anything that is not of you right now, I just rebuke and renounce it. God, I give you these next five minutes. I'm just going to be quiet. Would you show me anything in me that is sitting in the throne of my life that has no business being there? I'm telling you, if you will give him that kind of attention and priority, there will be things that will start coming to your mind. You say, Ken, how do you know that? Because I'm going down this journey too, guys. Ask him to reveal and uncover the hidden things in your heart and your mind. Seek him for the empowerment to tear down and to put to death every idol and commit yourself. Declare that there will be only one rightful master sitting in the throne. There's a few helpful resources, one in particular that I'll mention this morning. Next week we'll give you another one. But there's a great book by, by Kyle Eidelman called God's at War. Fascinating. Very easy to understand. You could even in the next minute download the, the um, audio book and so in a six and a half hours. If you do it at 1.25 speed like me, you could get it down for under six hours. Great book. You can, you can read it. It's on Hoopla. The audio book is. 
Hoopla is a free library app. We have the study available on Right Now Media. You can go to Right Now Media. And if you don't have Right Now Media, go to explorejourney.org slash gifts. And we have a free code for you. It's a great resource. If you're in a group of people, maybe not even an official Journey Church Life group, but you have a few friends that like to get together, he has a great, on Right Now Media, there's a six-week group session. You can watch a 20-minute video and there's discussion questions that go with it. It's all about idolatry. Fascinating. I encourage you to, to meditate on the scriptures that we've looked at. And over the next month, we're going to, next week, we're going to start with a character from the Old Testament. We're going to look at how God had to get their attention to help them realize that God alone must sit on the throne. But before we dismiss, maybe, maybe you're here and you say, Ken, I already know what it is. Or at least I know, I have a sense of some of what God's already convicting me about people, things, issues that are sitting in the throne and you'd say, Ken, I need some space before I leave to get with God and to pray this through. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. We don't have anything left in our service. We don't have any more announcements to give. But before we dismiss you, I want to just take a couple minutes to invite you that maybe if you need to come and just surrender some things to God, that you're welcome to do that. I want to first pray. Father, I pray for my friends. This issue of idolatry is central. There's a reason why it's the first commandment that's given and the second commandment. And God, I pray that you would move upon your people because we will not experience the fullness of your presence we will not see awakening and revival in our land until the church repents of idolatry. So God, I invite you to deal with me, to convict me, to convict my heart. That there would be a spirit of repentance and humility and brokenness inside of me. And God, I welcome that for everyone who's part of our church. That there would be a spirit of repentance and humility and brokenness. If you need to come, please come. We want to give you some time. We'll dismiss in just a few moments. By the way, we're all idolaters, so if someone comes up here, there's no judgment. If you want my heart, you've got it. You've got it. If you want my heart, you've got it, you've got it. If you want my heart, my heart is yours forever. Thank you, Jesus. My heart is yours forever. My heart is yours forever, Lord. My heart is yours forever, forever. Come and consume every room. It all belongs to you. It all belongs
belongs to you. It all belongs to you. Come and consume every room. It all belongs to you. It all belongs to you. Everybody else is uh, leaving in just a moment. If you need prayer, we have prayer partners that are available. Don't forget your connection cards. This week, may you remember that God alone must sit on your throne. We'll see you guys later.